Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to episode 161 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and my guest today is an actress and activist who has been a trailblazer on screen and off. She's the first openly transgender person ever to receive an acting Emmy nomination, or two, and the first openly transgender person ever to appear on the cover of Time magazine. One of the stars of the hit Netflix series Orange is the New Black, Laverne Cox. Cox's journey to this point has been anything but likely. Born and raised in Mobile, Alabama, in a religious home and conservative community, she knew early on that she was not like the kids around her, and constantly was reminded of that by bullies, teachers, and even relatives. But she also knew that she had to be and express herself, which she initially did through dance and later through acting. It was a desire to live more freely and to pursue her passion that led her to the Big Apple, where life was as much of a roller coaster as ever. While continuing to be subjected to cruelty and abuse by day, she became a fixture of the downtown club scene by night, and later a performer in off-Broadway productions and indie films, a bit player on TV series including Law & Order, and ultimately a reality TV contestant on VH1's I Want to Work for Diddy in 2008, and then a producer and co-host of the network's Transform Me in 2010. Her big break, however, came in 2012, when Weeds creator Genji Cohan cast her as Sophia Bursett, a trans woman imprisoned for credit card fraud, on Orange is the New Black, a dramedy series about life in a women's prison, the first season of which was unveiled in 2013 and quickly became the most watched original content on the then burgeoning streaming service called Netflix. For the first season's third episode, Lesbian Request Denied, which was directed by Jodie Foster and explored Sophia's backstory, Cox earned her first historic Emmy nomination. For the fourth season's fourth episode, Dr. Psycho, which depicts what life is like for a trans person in solitary confinement, she earned her second earlier this month. In between, she also landed her Time cover and became only the second trans performer ever to be a regular on a broadcast network show, the CBS drama Doubt which premiered and was canceled after the airing of just two episodes earlier this year, but additional episodes of which continue to air on the Tiffany Network on Saturdays at 8 p.m. and also are available online. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, Cox and I discussed a wide range of topics. Among them, the shaming that she faced as a gender nonconforming kid and how it drove her to the brink of suicide, why she moved to New York, got into acting, and ultimately decided to go through with a full transition, 
why she was interested in the trials and travails of imprisoned trans women even before she ever heard of Orange is the New Black, why she continued working at the New York drag queen restaurant Lucky Chang's even after she got hired to do the show, what it's felt like for her to see her rise to fame followed by far greater acceptance and representation of trans people elsewhere, from Transparent to Caitlyn Jenner to Chelsea Manning, and much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Laverne, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. We always begin by just asking every guest, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Mobile, Alabama. <laughs> I think I got a little Southern there when I said it. <laughs> I was born and raised in Mobile, Alabama, and my mother was a teacher. And you've spoken about the fact that it was you, your mom, your identical twin. Yes. And then your father wasn't really in the picture. That but, is correct, yeah. yes. So... Before we go any further, I wonder if you can help with, in case we have listeners who, you know, still need some, some terms clarified or whatever, <laughs> can you just explain what it means to, to be trans? I think there are fewer and fewer people out there today who who are totally in the dark about it, but like, if they could ask anyone, I think you would be the ideal person to ask. What's been really interesting about sort of me doing press the past several months is that I really haven't had to do that. I really haven't had to have that conversation. And sort of, I guess it was four years ago when Orange is the New Black premiered, I felt like I was always having yeah. conversations with, with media and journalists about what it means to be trans and sort of defining terms. And so I've really enjoyed not having to sort of, <laughs> Forgive me. Not having to sort of do that recently and have it really be about the work. My work as an actress. Yes. But for those people who don't know, basically when someone is transgender, it basically means that they do not identify with the gender that they were assigned at birth. And we know that gender is assigned at birth based on genitalia. And so so that your gender identity is different from your assigned sex at birth. That's basically what it means to be trans or gender nonconforming. Sure. And, and accordingly, I guess Laverne was not your birth name, but it was actually one of your names, right? Laverne was my middle name before I transitioned. Cox was always my last name, and I don't talk about my old first name. Just we, it's in the, in the past. Yeah, and in, in the trans community, we call that dead naming. Okay. And so it's it's it can be traumatizing for a trans person to talk about a name that they sort of never claimed that's attached to a gender that was painful for of us course. to sort of be perceived as. So we call that dead naming. And I want to reassure you that before we go any further that we are, of course, going to focus in depth on on the work. But I think what we do on this podcast every episode is just the person's entire life and, and career. And one of the things that it seems like was was a turning point for you, from what I've read, was in third grade, something happened. But I want to ask you before we... So just what, what kind of a kid were you before this sort of this turning point in third grade? So... Oh, gosh, my earliest memories of being a kid was that I felt like I talked a lot. <laughs> and my mother told me that a guy that she was dating would sort of had issues with how much I talked. And I think, you know, in retrospect, it felt like it was that I talked a lot and I was also very feminine. So it was sort of like, what is going on with that child? <laughs> so I talked a lot and I danced a lot. My earliest memories is that I, when music would come on, I would dance and I, I would move to the music and there was something very freeing to me about that. And when I started watching television very early on and I was 
see dance on television, it, I was just like, oh my God, I want to do that. And I remember for about five years old, finding out there was a thing that you, that you could dance and that you could study it and, and do it professionally. And so I remember at, around five years old, asking my mother to put me into dance classes and we couldn't really afford it. And I think there was a... I remember before dance classes, I was in karate. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So she put me in karate, and I really didn't want to take karate. <laughs> I wanted to dance. And so and I, and I, and she was, I was like, I want to dance, and she put me in karate. And I was like, <laughs> I want to dance, I want to dance, I want to dance. And then finally, in third grade, my mother put me into a dance class um, that, that was part of a, a program in my community in, in Mobile, Alabama, for low-income kids, so mm-hmm. we didn't have to pay. So I got to go and study for free once a week, and it was the most glorious thing in the world it was I felt free and I got to do the thing that I love to do most I got to get better at it and then it was the beginnings of me feeling like my dreams of becoming a professional dancer was always it was weird because in my head I always had so I always had music in my head as a kid Mm -hmm. and I I, so I danced around everywhere whether there was music playing or not the music was in my head Mm -hmm. groove is in the heart Mm -hmm. as Delight said so many years ago but I always had would also have characters in my head so that I would have the character would move a certain way and, and it would have certain mannerisms and I would express those characters through movement. So I always sort of felt like an actor who moved yeah. and like that and that movement was a way for me to express different characters. And so I always, in my mind, I was like, I'm going to be a professional dancer and dance on Broadway and dance mm-hmm. on TV and then I'm going to be an actor. That was like, in like, this was like, you know, very early. I mean, I'm very early. I'm not fully understanding what any of it fully meant. But when I started taking dance classes, I felt like I was on the road to that dream. And it was very exciting for me. So just as all of this is happening, you have, for not the first time, a sort of counter influence of people saying, stop, you're going in the wrong direction. In this case, who is Mrs. Ridgway? Miss <laughs> Ridgway is so famous now in my story. It's so funny. But Miss Ridgway was my third grade teacher and she's significant <laughs> because one day she called my mother on the phone and said, Your son is going to end up in New Orleans wearing a dress if we don't get him into therapy right away. And what's interesting too is that Miss Ridgway attached my how feminine I was to me taking dance classes. Well, I remember distinctly that Miss Ridgway said to my mother that you must take this child out of those dance classes because you're going to make them gay and they're and this and this is in my, the, how feminine I was was a problem that had to be solved according to Miss Ridgeway, and so I ended up in therapy. Meaning that your mother is it just the case of of a parent deferring to the teacher and saying, "All right, I'm going to follow your advice," or do you think your mother had independent concerns? <sighs> Yes, my mother, I, I, my mom and I are super cool right now. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing her later this month in New York. Nice. Everything's great now. But at the time, my mother was very gender policing. My mother often insisted, uh, often sort of policed my gender and shamed me because I didn't act the way the other boys acted. And she was really shaming. And then I think a lot of it for my mom, too, was the ways in which other people were sort of talking about her. Mobile is the second largest city in Mobile, but it's still a small town. And everyone talked and everyone was very sort of gossipy. So I think part of it, too, was the ways in which other people were talking about my mother, talking about me, and it became a reflection of my mother and her parenting. And so there was all that. So yeah, she deferred to Miss Ridgeway, but she was also concerned, I think, because of her own uh, sort of reputation in the community. And I think when Miss Ridgeway said that, I, what I began what I understood is that when she said you'll end up in New Orleans wearing a dress, you'll end up 
sort of homeless, you know, what we call homeless now, and sort of in address homeless and destitute. That's what how I interpreted it in my mind, and I believe that's how my mother interpreted it as well. So that this gender expression was going to lead to a life of being sort of destitute. What I'm wondering is, for, for your mother, for Miss Ridgway, for you, was there anyone in the culture who they could, who any of you could have looked at and said, wait a minute, this may be what's actually going on with, this was before you were Laverne, so I don't with know what Laverne, With but Laverne. With we'll Laverne. We'll say Laverne. Oh, excuse me, with, with Laverne. So, you know, today I would hope that because of people like you, a, a parent would be able to sort of understand that this was not something they should try to suppress or whatever. But at that point, did any of you have any idea what actually was going on? I certainly did not. And no. <laughs> I mean, I think what was, what was interesting was Miss Ridgeway, she said to my mother that her son acted in a similar way that I did when, when he was younger. And in fact, he was in New Orleans wearing a dress. I don't know if her son had transitioned or, you know, was a drag performer. I, I, don't, I don't have clarity about what, what exactly was going on there. So that was Miss Ridgeway's reference. Gotcha. And so there was certainly not, not any, any transgender people on television that we could look to. And so certainly not. And at the time, you know, when I and it's funny, I, t- I tell this story in my college lectures, and I don't often say it in the press, but when I got to the therapist, and I remember the therapist asked me if I knew the difference between a boy and a girl, because that was really what was at issue in so many people's minds, is that like I was not acting the way boys acted. And I remember distinctly when he asked me the, if I knew the difference between a boy and a girl, I said, there is no difference. Mm. And, and the way that I reasoned in my mind at the time is that everyone was telling me that I was a boy, but I actually knew that I was a girl. I knew in my heart, in my soul, in my spirit that I was a girl, but Everyone was telling me I was a boy, and so I reasoned that there must not be any difference. Now, this is third grade, and I didn't have any sort of language to explain it beyond that. So that was a pivotal point for me, just in terms of looking back on my story and trying to make sense of it, mm. is that I, I I knew who I was, and everyone else was sort of saying that you're not. You've often made the point that gender and sexuality should not be conflated. They're, 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 you can be a trans person who is attracted to men or women or neither or both or whatever, right? So for you, though, was part of what you were being given a hard time about that you were, I guess, even in that at that early stage, maybe you're not attracted to anybody at all. But as time passed, how much of the crap that you ran up against was about being attracted to men as opposed to being gender gender non-conforming non-conforming yourself yeah so first of all i'm not the only person who (laughs) who doesn't who who makes the distinction that um, gender identity and sexual orientation are very different that's well established what i will say about that is that and i talk about this too in my college lectures is that in this culture historically we have conflated sexual orientation and gender identity or gender expression and so then someone assigned male at birth at least in my day as a child (laughs) and you know probably still someone assigned a male at birth who was very feminine it was assumed because of that conflation that that person might end up being gay or or, or homosexual or, or, or whatever the term would have been at the time and so because of that conflation I was often called anti-gay slurs right and so I don't I think I was really being bullied because of my gender expression I I didn't express any 
I'm certainly not in third grade. I think I had crushes on boys, but it didn't really fully solidify until puberty, until mm-hmm. like middle school, that I really liked boys. Mm-hmm. And so n- there was no overt attraction that anyone knew of that I was having to to boys. But it was really about my gender, that yeah. I was bullied and, and policed as a kid. My own internal shame um, ended up being about my gender and also about being attracted to boys later on. I internalized that as being a sin, as being something that was shameful that I would go to hell for. You'd had a religious grandmother who passed away, right? The, yes, and I'd, I'd rather not talk about sure, that. Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> Only because you've, just, you've said that that sort of haunted you a little bit, right? It did, and I've, ta- and I've talked about it in the media before, and there's a part of me that's like, I, I see... I see headlines where where it feels almost like Laverne Cox's suicide attempt at 11 years old, and it feels very sort of. Um, I'm sorry, I'm a little raw today, no, but it know. feels very. And it, because preparing for this, I was like, well, we're going to come on and we're going to talk about this Emmy episode that mm-hmm. I'm nominated for mm-hmm. that I'm so grateful for. But attached to that is a lot of trauma. Attached to what is required for an actor mm-hmm. to deliver a performance like that is to delve into the deep recesses of our own trauma and shame. Mm-hmm. And so I. I I was like, oh gosh, I have to go there today, and so I'm like, it's it's kind sure. of on the surface for me right now. So when when these things come up, I'm like, oh gosh, you mm-hmm. know, it's that is what is required to be an actor. But also, I'm in a process now. We're in therapy and in in my spiritual work where I'm trying not to be overly defined by that trauma and by these horrible things that have happened to me. The only reason I really bring it up is that I think. People may not realize, at least according to the stats that I've seen, something like 40% of people who identify as trans have attempted suicide at least once. And for you, it's just, it was just very upsetting to see that it happened as early as 11 years old. And, you know, because that, I don't know, most people at 11 are thinking about, which is like sixth grade or something, right? They're thinking about recess or, you know, stuff. So it just, it, it, I think what it does is it says, that this was obviously a upsetting thing early on. But so what was it, though, that saved you from from going further down that route? It was dancing. It was performing. And it was school. Even though I was bullied at school, I loved learning. And I I, um, I would go to I would go to dance class on the weekends. And after school, I would go immediately to the library. And we lived very close to the library in my hometown of Mobile. So it was in walking distance to the public library. So I just spent lots of time there dreaming about being in New York mm-hmm. and being on television and being on stage. And I lived in my imagination. And that is the thing that kept me alive and I and I set very lofty goals for myself and in middle school specifically I remember I found out about a school in Birmingham Alabama called the Alabama School of Fine Arts mm-hmm. and I knew I had to go there I knew that if there was a school an art school in my in my home state that was similar to what I had seen on television on a show called Fame <laughs> <laughs> I knew I had to go there I knew that that would be the next best step for me to become really become a professional and this was like um, high school level this is high school yes okay. so then I, I auditioned and, I, and when I found out about the dance department at the Alabama School of Fine Arts I found out it was a ballet only program and mm-hmm. I, at that point I'd only studied tap and jazz so I've been writing doing creative writing at the time and so I sort of submitted myself for 
the school as a creative writing major. And my plan was to always go there and get in and get a scholarship and then start studying ballet and then switch my major to dance. And that's what I did my junior year. So I graduated from the Alabama School of Fine Arts as a dance major. And I was so blessed when I was there that I got to, um, I did summer programs in, 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 in New York. I came to New York for the first time to study at Joffrey Ballet School. Wow. And, and I studied at Houston Ballet Academy, Universal Ballet Academy in wow. D.C. And, and so I did the ballet school circuit. Yeah. But for the ballet dancers out there, you know that that's what you do in the summer. You go and study, do a summer intensive somewhere at some prestigious yeah. ballet school. And so by the time you graduate from high school, you eventually got to New York. But first, you did a little bit of studying at Indiana University. That right? is correct. Yes. And then what was it about Marymount in Manhattan, Marymount Manhattan College, that led you to go there? I assume it was the dance initially, yes. but also then, I guess, while you were there to, to actually start acting. So Marymount was cheaper than Juilliard <laughs> in, in NYU. Right. <laughs> and so I actually didn't even audition for Juilliard, but I did audition for NYU and, and, and got in at the time, but it was really expensive. Marymount was cheaper. Uh, yeah. So I went and I knew I needed to be in New York. That was always my dream. When I, The funny thing is bef- after I graduated from the Alabama School of Fine Arts, I went to Houston Ballet Academy and I hoped to maybe be accepted into the dance company there, apprentice in the Houston Ballet Academy, but I never had an ideal ballet body. And so they weren't interested in me. And I remember, um, I remember too, I was also very, even in ballet school, I was very gender nonconforming. And so there, I don't know if that was ever an issue. So then I applied, so I didn't initially even want to go to college. I wanted to be, uh, go into a ballet company, but I applied to college sort of as a backup. Right. So I ended up at NIU because they had a ballet only. It's funny that I initially, when I went to the Alabama School of Fine Arts, I had not studied ballet, but then after I started studying ballet, then that became my primary focus. So right. I ended up at IU Bloomington because of the ballet program there and the teachers. And then I ended up at Marymount because it was in New York and they have a really good dance program and they have a really fantastic theater department too. Mm -hmm. And my first week, I swear to you this happened, my first week at Marymount, I'm in the hallway. It's a small like sort of liberal arts school and at the time I had a shaved head and I think I was was addicted to like big wide leg bell bottom (laughs) pants and I wore false eyelashes every day and I had no eyebrows. Uh, (laughs) And I was beat for the gods. I was, was, you know, like a lot of just beat for the gods. And there was a guest teacher who saw me in the hall and thought that I would be perfect for a play that he was doing. And it was Max Frisch's Andorra. Mm. The role he had in mind for me was the um, village idiot who had no lines, but I only grinned and nodded (laughs) in the play. And so I, even though, and it's funny, I ended up doing the play and I, failed to get permission from the um, dance department, which was a problem, I realized <laughs> later. But I managed, I remember what was great about that first semester, because I remember I did a musical in the theater department. I did the indoor play, and then I did my own mess up in the dance department, and I was sort of like very, I was exhausted yeah. after that first semester, because I was also working at Dial America in Flushing, and so I was oh, going to like, oh. traveling to Flushing, Queens, like have a job, because I worked at Dial America when I was at IU Bloomington. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was a telemarketer. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> But I remember my uh, the head of my, the dance department at the time remarked at how well I was able to fulfill my obligations in the dance department and also do the things I was doing in the theater department. Right. So. Well, so okay. So you you were a busy person. You graduate, and you're now out in the real world for mm-hmm. the first time, having to think not only about what you're going through in terms of gender, but also in terms of now having to find your place in the professional world. And mm-hmm. you've said, "quote." I had a nervous breakdown. My career was going nowhere. I shaved off my Beyonce circa Destiny's Child long hair, bought boys clothes, and tried to be quote unquote normal. I was so unhappy and thought, 
I either have to transition or I have to kill myself, close quote. What tipped the scale towards going through with the transition? That's about right. It's good when people quote me. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's yeah, that's what I said. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think that's actually what I wrote. So um, ah. it was a year. So I had graduated. I think it was the year I graduated or it was the year I graduated and I was and I was going out. I was in New York and I was going out. And so I had grown my hair out and I had my little Destiny's Child braids, <laughs> my loose blonde braids. And I was going out almost every night of the week and, and doing the club scene in New York mm-hmm. really hardcore. Downtown, yeah. And basically I was wearing women's clothes. I was wearing dresses and skirts every day. It's not necessarily, I don't like that. The term women's clothes is problematic. Mm-hmm. So I was wearing dresses and skirts like every day and had long hair and was wearing makeup every day. And I was severely harassed every day. So I wasn't on, any, on the streets. Oh, yeah, because I hadn't um, done any medical transition. So I was obviously someone assigned male at birth. I hadn't had any sort of hormones or anything. Mm-hmm. So I was so I was harassed constantly so I it was it was so and it was exhausting so I would do so my makeup was sort of my battle armor you know I just I did this just did this movie that premiered at Outfest this past weekend called Freak Show and there was a moment when the character sort of being bullied at school and just puts on all this makeup as sort of armor and that was that very much that for me that my makeup was sort of my armor and so every time I would have to sort of brace myself Mm -hmm. before I left my apartment every day in New York City because I would get harassed on the train on Mm -hmm. the street just in the deli I would walk into delis and people would break, burst into laughter. I walked into a subway car and people were bursting into laughter and it was just so exhausting. Mm. And my brother lived in San Francisco at the time and I was able to take off from work. I worked at a coffee shop in Union Square. I was able to take off from work and went there and just it had a month to just kind of like get away from New York. And when I got away from New York and away from just the exhaustion of being harassed on mm-hmm. the street every day, I just sort of fell apart. I fell apart and I think part of it is that I... I mean, looking back, and I've been in a lot of therapy since then, I think a lot of it was that I had not dealt with all the trauma of being bullied as a kid, Mm -hmm. hadn't dealt with it, hadn't dealt with how that bullying basically extended into adulthood Mm -hmm. with being harassed on the street. Mm -hmm. And there was just sort of all this trauma, right? And I I just built up this facade of everything's okay and I'm strong and none of this is getting to me and in fact it was getting to Mm -hmm. me a lot of it was just the difficulty of living life as a gender non-conforming person on this in in New York City did it help at all that for I believe for the first time at those clubs downtown I believe for the first time you were seeing other Gender non-conforming people. Absolutely. So the, so the, so the wonderful thing about the nightclub scene, but this is like, but so at night, so a lot of, this is why a lot of trans women don't go out during the day, because yeah. at night I would go to the clubs and I wouldn't have to wait to get in and I was sort of a little bit of a mini celebrity yeah. and I was treated like a queen. Because you performed there at those <laughs> I clubs. I performed at nightclubs and I just was, and I, you know, sometimes I would just go, go, I go, go dance and I performed and whatever. So yeah. I did that. And at night it was Great, mm-hmm. you know. If I can afford to get into a taxi cab, it was even better. I'd have to take the subway and deal right. with the stuff. But during the day, for me, it wasn't just something that I did at night. And more and more through during college, I, as I grew my hair out, I knew I just I I needed to be female and feminine all the time. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't just something I did at night. And so the club scene was a wonderful refuge and the people I met there were incredible and changed my life. Mm-hmm. But during the day is when the just Ugh, the um, difficulties of um, existing in, 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 in a gender non-conforming space were just, I lived them hardcore. So I went to San Francisco and shaved my head and having, I had a full-on nervous breakdown. Wow. <laughs> and then and then went forward with the... It was way before Britney Spears shaved her head and had her breakdown. <laughs> you, yeah, she, she owes you royalties. <laughs> yeah. 
So, but then the the going back to New York, you at that point decided this is I need to fully. Transition. It was it was a year later. A year it was later. Out exactly a year later, and I I remember when I, I shaved my head, and I swear that lasted for about a week. I shaved my head. I was like, what the. <laughs> fuck you can did say I whatever. Just do? Yeah, yeah. So what the fuck did I just do? And like for a week, and so I went and bought a wig because I had no hair right, to like right. extend or do anything with. <laughs> and then I started, and then I kind of did like a started doing a part time thing. So I was like, maybe I should try to do a boy thing during the day and just be a girl at night. And then I was just like, this is. I'm just like, what are you doing? And I think what a lot of what I think about my pre medical transition days, a lot of it was just me being in denial. It was just me like just running away from myself. It was like. Just girl, you're a girl. <laughs> what, what, what you were you know, running away from, though, was it that there was no going back if you did proceed? Was that was that any or what? What was giving you pause? It was the shame I'd internalized around that started in third grade. Mm-hmm. I really believe that it started with Miss Ridgeway and my mother and ending up in New Orleans wearing a dress. And so even like even when I in high school, when I started wearing girls clothes in high school, I wouldn't wear dresses or skirts because in my mind, that was this like and, and to this day, being homeless is one of my greatest fears. So I think that early shaming around my gender was also attached to this destitute life of being homeless and sort of being a street person and you know that's the way that's the terminology that we used back then and so as problematic as that language is and so that's what it was about I was a straight A student (laughs) I won talent contest and got scholarships stance scholarships I was uh, for by all you know counts a very accomplished young person but I also had this gender stuff Mm -hmm. that made me different and made me an outsider. And so I wanted to be successful and I was groomed to be successful, but I didn't associate being transgender with being successful. Because there weren't the examples. There weren't the examples. And what happened to me when I moved to New York and met real life transgender people, mainly in the club scene, and Mm -hmm. I got to know the diversity. And then when I worked at coffee shop, there was an Mm -hmm. amazing woman. Her name was Paris. And she was this amazing club kid who ended up transitioning. She transitioned and then she became very, I won't say what she, because she's still Mm -hmm, now, mm -hmm. but she became very successful. And so we all sort of knew about that. And so I, I, I began to learn that you can transition and have a very successful life. And back then, trans people would transition and disappear. Right. And so we didn't know about the success stories of transgender folks because they were, it was, that was the protocol, it was the medical protocol from Harry Benjamin to transition and disappear. So once you had transitioned, in what ways was your life better? And in what ways was it the same or worse? I want to just read back another quote of yours. This was something that you wrote, I believe, in The Advocate a few years ago. Quote, when I was perceived as a black man, I became a threat to public safety. When I was dressed as myself, it was my safety that was threatened, close quote. So now you've committed to presenting yourself in public as a, as a female and living your, your true self at that point. Was, was life better? Well, it wasn't such a, from presenting as male to presenting as female, because before I'd medically transitioned again, I was very gender nonconforming. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think back on that statement that I wrote, and I think that like, it's it's potentially problematic because of the fluidity of my own gender mm-hmm. gender life. But I think when I started medically transitioning, what was 
wonderful about that for me was that finally I had language. I, I claimed the language to to for me because up until that point I was living in this kind of there was gender nonconforming wasn't a term that we right. really used and so I was just sort of in this sort of nebulous sort of non-existent place with gender and when I claimed trans it was just empowering. I was like, oh, this is what I am, and it was like I had a term for it, and it was just empowering to embrace that early on. And then I, you know, I did my name change, and I, and so the, the it, all of it was difficult because people, you know, people around me had to transition to using a different name and and different um, pronouns, which was a big deal for me. But then, you know, I. You, I never felt safe on the streets of New York because I was almost always, when I moved to New York, in a gender nonconforming space. Mm -hmm. There were times when I did try to present as more male after that breakdown and definitely felt the things that that, that one feels when they're perceived as as a black man in, in culture. But then it wasn't safe for me before I medically transitioned because I was gender nonconforming. And then it wasn't safe for me after I medically transitioned because I was... Some people still read me as trans, and then some people didn't read me as trans. So it was like so I was still being read as trans for many years after the beginning of my medical that, transition. That is actually but, right. but not by everybody. So there, it was less. So I would say that the harassment was less than it was before the medical transition, right? But I was still, there was almost always someone in some context that read me as trans. So meanwhile, you're, I, I guess, auditioning to play characters in various theater and film and TV productions at that point, or not quite yet? So it was interesting about my acting trajectory is that like my I remember like I did a play one of the I did the Max Frisch play yeah. in college and that was technically a male role but then I did I played Queenie in uh, Fortune in Men's Eyes which is sort of a drag role and then my acting teacher at the time knew about this Canadian playwright named Michelle Tremblay mm-hmm. and I did scenes and monologues from Hosanna mm-hmm. this one Canadian play I don't know if you know or familiar with it mm-hmm. and so there were a lot of sort of drag roles that I did for many years and then I did my first movie when I was a senior in college and someone saw me on the train dressed you know and mm-hmm. My Destiny's Child braids and my, I think, a paisley coat with a right. uh, faux fur collar. And I was like, you'd be great for this movie. And I got did my first movie. And so my next movie, so I was I did a few films that were trans roles and then drag roles. And that I wasn't necessarily, I auditioned for some. And then sometimes people would be at the club and see me and say, you should be in this film. Because here's what I wanted to ask yeah. you. I mean, were you, as you started going out for things, mm-hmm. were you... Specifically, uh, were you auditioning to play characters who specifically were identified in a script as trans, or would you try to play female characters? You know what I mean? Where and I ask because I've read conflicting things where some trans people have said their ultimate goal was to blend in. Yes. Others say they like that they stand out as trans. So I wondered what your thoughts were on that. When I decided to medically transition, I wanted to blend in. I wanted to, my I, my goal was to eventually live a stealth. Mm-hmm. That was to live stealth. That was the goal. I didn't transition to be openly trans. Mm-hmm. When I accepted that that I was being that I was trans, that was a revelation. But it was my hope because this is what I'd seen from from Tina Sparkles and Paris mm-hmm. and so from other trans women that they transitioned in like two or three years in, they were able to sort of blend in. Mm-hmm. Pass is the term; it's such mm-hmm. a deeply problematic mm-hmm. term. But they were able to pass, and that's what I had hoped would be the reality for me. And so I remember I, I ended up at Susan Batson's studio. I'd done a few movies, and then I was working a coffee shop, and one of my coworkers, Candace Edmonds 
Jackson. Hi, Candace. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like I'm at going to this wonderful studio, and you should. I know you. I see that you act. You just did a movie. You mm-hmm. should come. And Susan changed my life. And I never. Initially, when I was at Susan's studio, I didn't talk about being trans. Some people knew, understood that I was trans, and then apparently Susan, it was years, Susan for years didn't know. It was so <laughs> funny. She was like, we were, I was in a meeting with her years later. She was like, you know, and I thought, I, I kind of thought she knew, but then right. I just didn't talk about right, it. Right. But I didn't know who knew, and it right. was one of those weird things. And she was like, I didn't know until like I'd auditioned for this really famous agent. She, because she had industry workshops mm-hmm. where agents and casting directors would come, and I'd auditioned for this. Agent and you know, did a, a monologue, a, a female monologue, cis, cis female monologue, right. and did a, a sort of interview afterwards. And he explained to her that I was trans, oh. and that's why he couldn't represent me. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> So you're always gotta run into some of these um, characters. So that so that was the thing for me that like for many years I wanted to blend in and wanted to sort of be stealth and to quote unquote pass, but there were invariably always someone who knew that I was trans. And that became that was very difficult for me. I was like, why am I going through this mm-hmm. if people can tell that I'm trans? And it was very it was I was I was really shaming and I felt like a failure often. Whenever someone would misgender me on the street, I was just like, "This is horrible." And it really wasn't until I had done some work to sort of embrace myself or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until and I was in therapy. But it wasn't until 2007 and Candace Kane mm-hmm. premiered in a show called Dirty Sexy Money and mm-hmm. became the first openly transgender person to have a recurring role in a primetime TV show that I believed that it was possible for me to be openly trans and have a career as an actor. And that was just before you had sort of your breakthrough, but in a way not as an actor initially, but as a reality uh, personality, (laughs) which I want to ask you about. But before we move on, because I mean, we keep hearing about how the the different sort of intolerance that you've come up against. And what I wonder is what you think is at the root of transphobia, because Hmm. it seems to me that the and I'm just speculating here, but the ultimate underlying unspoken fear of a lot of straight men may be that they might inadvertently become attracted to or involved with a woman who then they find out is trans. And then there's something about that that they can't live with. Do you think that that, I mean, this was the focus of Louis C.K. did an episode of Horace and Pete. I don't know if you if you checked I it out. I saw the episode. And I just wonder what you think about that because it seems like it's everything is, intolerance is rooted in fear. So what are people afraid of here? And that seems to be the thing that I would think for a lot of these folks it might be. I think it's a lot of things, but I think that is part of it. But I think the larger issue there is patriarchy and the ways in which patriarchy informs not only, you know, anti-woman narratives, but also anti-LGBT narratives, the ways in which gender identity and sexual orientation have been conflated in the patriarchal imagination. I wrote a piece for the New York Times about Mm -hmm. this, that in the oppressor's imagination, if one historically, right, I think it's less so now, but historically, if someone assigned male at birth had sex with another male, Man, that made him less of a man. Mm-hmm. And historically, if someone assigned male at birth dressed as a woman, that made him less of a man. So these think two things in the patriarchal imagination were conflated, right? Mm-hmm. That made you less of a man, i.e. a woman. Mm-hmm. So the link to those things is, is is patriarchy, right? So there's so there's this cultural thing around that. But I think a lot so there's 
And when, and Jen Richards, the brilliant Jen Richards, says that when cisgender men play trans women in film and on television, that reinforces the idea that trans women are really men. And then when, and then when men straight identified cis men are attracted to us, they think about the the beautiful Jared Leto, and he's really beautiful, and his beard accepting an Oscar (laughs) for playing a trans woman, or the beautiful Jeffrey Tambor at the Emmys, who who both are incredible actors and artists. But that becomes part of the narrative. Mm -hmm. But I think part of what underlies the sort of anti-trans sort of all this bathroom stuff that that you see within yeah. sort of radical feminist circles of we want to exclude trans women because it's a safety issue. Underlying that is that trans women are not really women. I, I've, I've, I've been going around the country saying that the biggest obstacle facing transgender people is the assumption that we are always and only the gender we were assigned at birth. And therefore so then, potentially predatorial towards it, the gender that you have identified as. But there's also a long history. I just saw there's a beautiful film that's I'm going to, um, going to be shot in the fall called mm-hmm. Disclosure mm-hmm. Um, directed by Sam Fader that uh, outfested the Trans Summit last week. I'm so glad I went. Mm-hmm. Sam did it to show some clips from the film of how trans people have been represented in film and on television since 1914. Wow. And so much of that narrative has been predatory. So we, tra- if you look at Psycho, if we look at Dress to Kill, if we mm-hmm. look at Silence of the Lambs, if we look at so many films even before that that even in yeah. television shows that predate that that trans women have been portrayed as serial killers as predators so there's a whole history right so that this very subconsciously ingrained right. in folks to think that 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 trans folks particularly trans women are predators because that is the way the ways in which that we've been represented ace ventura right. pet detective that we've been represented in these ways that sort of present us as predatory so there's so so it's a lot of things so there's the way the way patriarchy works. Mm-hmm. There's the way there, there's the assumptions that trans women are, are not really women, and then there's the ways in which we've been represented in the media. Do you know what's kind of crazy? Also, though, is that I was just reading an, uh, really an early history of of Hollywood, and it turns out that quite a few folks, from Irving Thalberg at MGM to Conrad Veidt, who later played Major Strasser in Casablanca, mm. to a few others of the men in the community actually quite frequently dressed as women in their private lives. Mm. And so there was some inner conflict. They, they wouldn't do it. I, I actually think Conrad Veidt did it out in when he was still in Germany before he came over here. They mm. said he would be out in public. As what year was of, that? Roughly? So that would have been, he, he was probably the 30s. Both of them in the so 30s. Weimar, so yeah. Weimar, Weimar, Balanch. Yeah, so there, there was, was a lot of that. There, yeah, there was a lot of that, which so, is... Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting time. But for you, back to you, the (laughs) (laughs) not not Conrad Veidt. So 2008, that was the first time you really reached a mass audience, I think, with VH1's I Want to Work for Diddy as a a reality show about auditioning to play P. Diddy's assistant or Puff Daddy or whatever we're calling him these days. You were the first African-American trans woman ever on an American reality TV show, made it quite far into the competition. How did that even, how did you end up there? <laughs> That's a really good question. So I had been, obviously, been acting for a long time before that. Right. But what had happened in 2007 when Candace Kane had her breakthrough moment, I was like, this is the time for me. So right. I, re, I, I created postcards and sent them to, and I said, Laverne Cox is the answer to all your transgender acting <laughs> needs. I'm claiming being trans. And I right. sent them to Kate's casting directors and agents. And the manager that I'm working with now, Paul Halepo, actually, I got 
uh, was one of four meetings I got from that, that okay. mailing of postcards. But then once that Candace's moment happened, I just started submitting myself for everything. I remember, I think uh, I was on Craigslist and there was a call for Big Brother. Mm-hmm. And so I submit, I was submitting myself for everything. I was just in a moment of like, it's, I'm an actress, yes, but let's, reality, I just yeah. said yes to everything. Yeah. So I remember submitting myself for a casting for Big Brother. And I remember I couldn't make it to the casting. I think I had to go to acting class mm-hmm. or something. You yeah. know, I, I really prioritized acting class over everything else. For whatever reason, I couldn't go to the Big Brother casting. But Chris, who was the casting director, kept my information on file. And so when the I Want to Work for Diddy casting auditions came along, he had my information and called me and said, would you be interested? And to be honest, I think I can say this um, nine mm-hmm. years later, I was never really interested in being P. Diddy's personal right, assistant. Right, but what right. I was interested in is advancing my career. And, get, and basically, like, just what I learned from doing acting workshops and is that you need to develop relationships with the casting directors. Yeah. And so this is a reality of casting directors. So I really went in, not with the even hope of doing the reality show, but of building a relationship with Chris. But they were specifically <clears throat> seeking to cast a trans contestant or no. it just happened to be that no. he knew I about think you? Chris, Chris was intrigued by me, I yeah. think. I think Chris was intrigued by me and was like, let's, he just, can you just called me in? Yeah. And I met with the producers and I think because I really didn't want to do it, I wasn't trying to impress anyone. Right. I was just like, this is who I am. And right. I think I was probably, at, a, at an audition or interview, I think I was probably more myself right. for that than I ever had been before, because right. I wasn't, it's a lesson in really not wanting something right. and just being yourself, and they were like, they were got really excited after the first meeting, I was like, oh, they're interested, <laughs> and I just wasn't, I was just surprised, and I was like, right. do I want to do this, and right. it was just really, I was just going on, doing my rounds, yeah. going on auditions, yeah. and go, doing meetings and stuff, and so then I had a second interview, and they were like, we're really interested, and blah, 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 and I'm like, okay, well, what would this look like, and mm-hmm. then they sent me a contract, and I was like, this contract is crazy, right. and and then I talked to my um, brother and friends and my agent, Paul, at the time, um, who didn't really do reality, but he took a look at the contract anyway. And basically, the contract, you were like, everybody's like, you're signing over all your rights. You have no control over how they're going to represent you. The history of how trans people have been represented on, you know, from t- t- daytime TV shows is really most of all of what we had was horrible. Mm-hmm. Everybody's like, you should not do this. They're going to make you a spectacle. They're going to humiliate Plus, you. weren't you a bit concerned that it could make people forget that you were primarily an actress. That was my brother's biggest concern. Uh-huh. My brother, it's funny, my brother was like, was very early on was the first person who was like, you can act, you're amazing, you're brilliant. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he still claims that. Mm-hmm. And it's true, he's the one. So he was like, you're a, my brother was like, you're a serious actor, you have talent people aren't going to see that. And I was really kind of leaning towards what my brother was was saying about doing a reality show. And then the day before my final interview, I was was shopping in in my neighborhood and I was walking down the street and passed a group of young men, young black men. This is not unusual. I was called anti-gay slurs, anti-trans slurs, and one of them kicked me. And then I retreated into a nearby store and called the police. And this was the day before my final audition for um, or interview for I Want to Work for Diddy. And I thought, if I were on this show competing to be the assistant of a hip-hop mogul, (laughs) a black, very Mm -hmm. prominent black hip-hop mogul, maybe the black community wouldn't be so, maybe that could be a moment for the black community. And maybe like, cause at the, up in, at that time, most of the bullying and harassment I'd experienced in my life had been from other black people. And I'm always careful to say, this is yeah, not yeah, to suggest yeah, black yeah. folks are more right, homophobic right. or transphobic than everybody else, but often marginalized people police each other. So we release our own bl- women, police other women, black folks, police other black mm-hmm. folks, etc. And that had been my experience. And I thought it could be a really powerful thing. So it really wasn't 
about me. Right. The turning point for I Want to Work for Diddy for me in my life was because it really wasn't about me. It was bigger than me. Because at the end of the day, it could have gone very horribly wrong. But I thought that this, if if it could, has the potential to go right. To be clear, though, in my final interview, I said to the producers, I remember Sean Rankin was one of the executive producers, and I said to him and to everyone in the room, I do not want to be exploited. Mm-hmm. I do not want to be a spectacle. Mm-hmm. I am here to do a job. Mm-hmm. I'm here to advance my career. I'm here to to make a statement about trans people for, for black folks. And and Sean said to me, my, on my word as a black man, this is not what we're here to do. And Diddy saw your tape and immediately said yes. So Diddy, you never felt had any issues with trans people either? Not that I've experienced. Yeah. Not that I experienced. And so you he get, had some issues with um, language, uh, yeah. um, <laughs> but everybody did in 2008. Sure, you know, I remember, God, it. I was called a transvestite so many times and so much press. So there was a lot of, yeah, we lot had of, a long way to go. That was sure. the dark ages compared to now. So you get um, halfway through that competition. And then I guess on the basis of, of your popularity on that show, you get pitched, I believe, or, or how did it end up that you end up producing and co-hosting your own show now this this makeover show transform me very good title that was you know i guess the next step i'm a hustler that's how it happened <laughs> I'm, I'm from new york i'm a hustler mm-hmm. um what, what one of the great things i learned from i want to work for diddy was about branding i had never really thought about myself as a personal brand before that i want to work for diddy show and i think that that if i had just been an actor i wouldn't have thought in those terms so basically, after I was eliminated on I Want to Work for Diddy, some executives from VH1 called me in for a meeting and said that, you, that you've tested very well. The audiences love you. According to French L, I was a fan favorite. Ah, there you go. <laughs> and they were like, what would you be interested? We maybe want to do a show with you. And what would, what would that be? Initially, there was talk of a dating show. This was the days, I think, of Flavor of Love and right. stuff on VH1. And we sort of talked about that. And I was like, I would not want to do a dating show. And, and, I was, and at the time, I was working with a group of, I had a company, actually called Complete World Domination and I had a group of friends who we've been working on a documentary together and they had a bunch of we had a bunch of ideas for TV shows and I said well I'm working with a group of producers and we have a lot of ideas for TV shows actually can we go and do a little prep and come back and pitch you something mm-hmm. and they said yes I went to my team and we had an idea for sort of a transgender queer eye for the straight guy yeah. and that wasn't was never my ultimate goal to be sort of a makeover show person, but I thought that that would be something as problematic as it is that centered cisgender people, and that would be a way to get transgender people in the homes of folks in middle America so they can get to know us as human beings. Totally, which is what Queer Eye, among other things, seem to have done for the gay community. Yeah. So we went in and pitched the show. VH1 immediately loved it. This was, gosh, this was like October of of 2008. Mm -hmm. And I think we, we did the pilot, and then we shot the pilot. We cast, and we shot the pilot in like March... I think of 2009 mm-hmm. found out in August that we were picked up wow. for series and then we um, it was a traveling makeover show so we commenced to you know prepare and shop and then we traveled the country wow. making over non-transgender women using what we've learned to make over ourselves Jamie Clayton and Nina Poon were my uh, cohorts on that show Nina did she was our stylist and Jamie did makeup and I was sort of the self-actualization chick <laughs> and it seemed that's ironic because I'm still you know sort of <laughs> performing that role 
role in some capacity in my life. Right. But yeah, we had so much fun and I, I just, I was so excited. What was interesting for me though, on a personal level, I remember when we were shooting, we were traveling, we were shooting Transform Me and here I was, I co-created the show. I was starring in it, producing. Mm-hmm. And I had thought up until that point that when I was starring in my own show, that all of the pain of my childhood would go would go away. And here I was starring in my own show and it hadn't and it actually was sort of exacerbated. There was all this pressure right now. I was sort of working, I was working for Viacom and I was working for corporate America from having like sort of worked in restaurants. And I, it was like a, I kind of started to fall apart and it was definitely a spiritual crisis for me. And I, and it was, and I, I realized then that I had, that, that there had to be other work that I did to heal from my childhood trauma. So that's when I, I found a new therapist and mm-hmm. did some other, did some other sort of radical things yeah. to begin the process of healing. And further to your point about not that this didn't solve everything, let's just note, cause so there was only one or two years between the end of Transform Me and the beginning of Orange is the New Black for you, right? And during those years, you have said that you thought about quitting the business altogether. You've said that you were at you were at uh, court dealing with an eviction notice That's and true. some horrendous things. So it's not like just because now you're on a VH1 show or hosting a VH1 show or whatever that all your problems go away. So set the context for what was going on in your life when somehow, I guess, you first hear about this show on a service that previously was not really known for creating content, Netflix's Orange is the New Black. What was the what was the so, first sign? So so Transform Me happened in 2010, was a huge flop, no one watched it. After that, I was like Okay, I'm done with like reality t- television. That's never what I wanted to do anyway. I'm an actress. I found an incredible studio called The Studio in New York mm-hmm. um, that was run by Brad Calcaterra. And he started a class called Act Out that he designed specifically for LGBTQ actors. Mm-hmm. And that class changed my life. It was really a huge part of the healing process from my trauma. It's still something I'm working on. I'm still in th- mm-hmm. I was th- talking about healing from trauma mm-hmm. yesterday in therapy. But that class changed my life. I started that class in fall of 2010. And then the next year, I booked a movie called Musical Chairs. And then I did another independent film called Carla. And then I did an independent film called Grand Street. And then I did an independent film called The Exhibitionist. Mm -hmm. And then a short film called Migraine. And then another independent film called 36 Saints. So I worked a lot Mm -hmm. in 2011. All independent films, you know, didn't get paid a lot, but I still had my restaurant job. I was working at Lucky Chang's Mm -hmm. and making a decent living. And then in, I think, my last movie wrapped in like October and the restaurant was really slow. And by February I didn't have money for rent and I had gotten another eviction notice and was in housing court. And luckily I didn't get evicted Mm -hmm. and I was set up on a payment plan. So this is 2012. And by May of 2012, my birthday's in May. I was like, I hadn't booked anything in like, it was like six months. And I was like, and in my goal, I'd started writing down five things I'm grateful for and five things I'm manifesting. And at the beginning of 2012, I was like, I want to have a recurring role in a TV show. That was Mm -hmm. my goal for the year, especially after doing doing all this independent Mm -hmm. film work. And no work for six months. And I was like, well, maybe I'm done. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's something else that I should do. A friend, someone had come into Lucky Chains who was now in, in graduate school. And I was like, maybe that's what I should mm-hmm. do. And so I went and got GRE materials. A friend of mine who had just gotten into Columbia, had all their materials, sold them to me at, at, a, at a discount. Mm-hmm. I started studying uh, for the GRE. But there was something in me that still 
wanted to act. So um, there were no auditions. So I started like looking for auditions. And I remember submitting myself for a few things. And then I was at a GLAAD event in August of 2012. And Paul, my manager, said that there's, there's a Netflix show that about women's prison. And there's a role of a hairdresser that I think you'd be right for. And I was like, women's prison? That sounds mm-hmm. cool. Mm-hmm. And was that role specifically for a trans it was. Person. It was. And so in early September of 2012, I auditioned. I remember I went in. I put a little powder on so I wouldn't mm-hmm. shine, but that's the only makeup I wore. And I wore a short wig and, like, a bandana and, like, jeans and, a, like, a, and like, a little T-shirt. And I did the audition, and Jen Houston gave me some adjustments. We did it again. I'd auditioned for Jen previously for an independent film that I did not book. Mm-hmm. They hired a non-trans person for the part. And it was a trans role. And from that one audition, I booked the show. Did so, you realize that that was a big deal? Did you think no. the show was going to be a very good show? Like, at that point... I had read... So I would read the pilot script, and yeah. I thought it was brilliant. And I saw right. Ginger Cohen's name, and I was a huge Weeds fan. I right. loved Weeds. Right. <laughs> and so at the end of Weeds... Anyway, Ginger Cohen, you right. see her name at the at the end of Weeds. And right. so I knew her name very well from being a huge Weeds fan. Right. And the script... For the pilot script for Orange is New Black, if you can read it, it jumps off the page. And I'm like, porn stash. I'm like, this is <laughs> dope. Right. And it was just, there was so much life in, in, in the script and the characters were so vivid. And, and and Sophia has just a teeny tiny part in the in the pilot. And I had like, you know, play with Piper's hair in, in the lunch line, you know, <laughs> in the cafeteria. Right. And then, so for my audition, I got to do the bathroom scene from, with also with Piper, um, from episode three, which I didn't, which I would find out later would be Sophia's backstory yes. episode. So when I booked the show, I was just happy that I was recurring on something and that I had a job. <laughs> and, and to the extent that you weren't, you didn't even leave the Lucky Chang. Oh, girl, right? no. <laughs> so you have to understand that in 2011, I did seven independent films. Right. Obviously, independent films don't pay well. Right. I had started my own show on VH1 right. and never left the restaurant. And that's the best thing I ever could have done for myself because yeah. the times got hard right. and I didn't have, you know, there were no acting jobs. There was no TV, anything. And so I had my day job, which was a night job. And so I would, no, you don't quit your job because you book even, one job. But what about even? <laughs> <laughs> what about even after the pilot gets picked up? You stuck around, or at that point? Well, you're... well, Orange had already been gone to series, um, so it was so we, it was gone, it had gone to series. Oh, okay, so you so. just how long were you there at Lucky Chang's? So we started shooting Orange in September of 2012. We finished, we wrapped in January, and I was still at Lucky Chang's till May. And honestly, I pro- I didn't even leave Lucky Chang's. I was I was could have let go because Lucky Chang's is sort of it's a pop up now. But, right. um, but the previous owner, wow, I'm spilling tea. <laughs> Uh, the previous, the owner of Lucky Chains, Hayne, may she rest in peace. She's now passed away. Yep. So a previous employee, I'll just I'll say her name, to Deandra. <laughs> hey, shout out to Deandra. Lucky Chains had been closed for a weekend by the Board of Health for some sort of health code violation, okay. and so Deandra had had left Lucky Chains and found out about it and wrote this hilarious post on Facebook. Deandra, it's hilarious. She's a drag queen <laughs> who old school legend, New York right. City legend, who was hilarious. She wrote this hilarious post about it, and I liked the post. And the owner of Lucky Chains. Saw it. So this was May of 2013, which was like a couple months before Orange right. Premieres. And she saw it and was like, you are fired. You oh, know? no. And so so be careful what you do on social yeah. media, people. <laughs> so I actually didn't even leave Lucky Chang's. I was I was sort of, I was let go. At a time, though, if it had, if it had to happen, that was a good time for it to happen. The, well, the thing is, I had, because of overtime for my backstory episode, I, I got, I made enough money to sort of pay my rent up to, by November of 2012, I was finally caught up for the first time. My okay. rent was paid in full. 
And then I had made had extra money, so my rent's not a lot. I have a, a really cheap rent, oh, rent stabilized apartment yeah. that I still live in in New York. Yeah. And so I paid my rent six months in advance. That's great. So my rent was paid up through May. And so I got fired in May, and I was like, yeah. oh my God, what am I going to do? I didn't know if there was going to be a second season of Orange. I didn't know if anybody would like Orange. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, at that point, House of Cards had come out in February. So I was like, okay, this is sort of what the streaming thing was like. And House right. of Cards had a great buzz right. about it. And I just, what was, what, what I just want to say the wonderful thing about the first season of Orange is New Black right. is that. There was no pressure because we it's not like we were on a known entity. It wasn't, it wasn't right. like I was doing a CBS show. Right. So there was no pressure because I was like, I don't know if anybody's going to see this anyway. No, all, anybody, <laughs> all anybody expects from Netflix is their envelopes to show up no on No one knew anything about a streaming <laughs> no. show. So right. the incredible thing for me, and I think for most of us shooting that first season, is that we just loved these stories yeah. and thought the stories were important. And this show that focused on so many women of different shapes and sizes and ages and sexual orientations and races and classes. It was just so special and magical. So it was just about the work. Now, is it not a little bit crazy that as you were being approached to play a trans person in jail, you were already thinking about a trans person in jail? Oh, yes. What was that about? I think it was it was 2012. Yeah, it was 2012 that I was approached. Yeah, it was 2012 that a woman named Jack Garris, who worked at a PBS show called In the Life, that was a monthly show that focused on LGBT issues. Um, The show existed for about 20 years on PBS. And so... Jack had approached me about doing a segment for In the Life, producing a segment. I and mean, at this point, I had produced, you know, um, my own uh, yeah. Transform Me and had been writing um, articles for the Huffington Post on trans issues. So I had, you know, so I was sort of known a little bit in the community yeah. for that. And so she approached me about doing something. And so C.C. McDonald's case was... She, on my heart at the time, Cece McDonald was a transgender woman who ended up in jail for defending herself because one of her attackers was killed in, as she defended herself. Mm-hmm. And when she took a plea, I remember, that, I think that was 2012, she took a plea. I was remember just being devastated by the whole thing because Cece's story, I, as you know, I've told you, so much of my life has been experiencing street harassment. Mm-hmm. And Cece McDonald was walking down the street in, on June 5th, 2011 with a group of her friends in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and was anti-trans slurs, anti-gay slurs, and racist slurs. The first word that C.C. McDonald heard was the N-word that day, and a fight happened, and and and, and C.C. fought for her life, and one of her attackers ended up dead, and mm-hmm. she ended up in prison for that. So when Jack approached me, I wanted to do something on the culture of violence against transgender folks, specifically focusing on C.C.'s story. And so um, we um, sort of put it, submitted a proposal. Jack loved it. She was like, you know, what if do you think what if we got to get an interview with Cece? Mm-hmm. I was like, she's in jail. Do you think we can make that happen? Yeah. She was like, let's try. And so we we had approached, I both of us approached St. Cloud Prison. And because In the Life was so well regarded, it was a PBS show, we got permission to interview Cece. Wow. So we were planning to go to interview Cece in November of 2012. And we found out... I think it was in September. It was right after I booked Orange is New Black that In the Life had lost their funding and the show would not be continuing past 2012. And so we would not be able to do the segment. And I'm and Jack reminds me that I said to her, you know, I just booked a show about 
where I play a transgender woman in prison, I think there'll be an opportunity to do the something highlight. on CC's story. Yeah. I literally said that to her. And then in May of 2013, right before Orange premiered, I spoke at the GLAAD Media Awards in San Francisco. And I talked about CC McDonald. And I said that I'm playing a transgender woman who's incarcerated and we must not forget CC. Mm-hmm. And she had just written a blog, I think, about, um, she had just turned 25 mm-hmm. or something in prison. And she, she had been blogging from behind bars and was just, just really eloquent mm-hmm. host. And so, I wanted to remind folks of CeCe McDonald at the GLAAD Awards and, and and Jack saw that and said oh shoot this story really means something to her still and she approached me and said what if we did a documentary about CeCe and I said yeah I just said I was like I don't know how we're going to fund right, it or right, do it but right. I said yeah let's do it yeah. did and you end up meeting CeCe? in November of 2013 I think a few days was it before Thanksgiving we went to St. Cloud Minnesota and went into the prison and interviewed Cece McDonald so a year after we initially planned to do it we got to do it but by this point your profile was already it was different so, yeah. so Orange is the New Black so was the, interest, the trajectory of Orange was, was fascinating this is 2013 that right. we interviewed her I, the show had come out I used, I started to feel that it was it was people were watching because people were stopping me yeah, on the street. My Twitter followers, I was getting like ten thousand new Twitter followers a week. Oh my god! For like several months. Was that my, the biggest way that it was clear that it was it was blowing up, or were you just getting much more on the street? It was or? it was both. Yeah. It was Twitter and it was the street stuff. And I hadn't really done much press. I you know I'm a hustler, so I <laughs> you know gotten some from my other work. I got done right. some interviews and things with a few journalists, but I hadn't had any major media moments up right. until that point. Right. So I was known but it wasn't it hadn't fully blown up 2014 was the year that yeah. it really shifted Emmy nomination Time Magazine cover that was a definitely a big year for you but one other just real life trans prisoner I have to ask you about was uh, people need to remember that there's a real Piper and the show yes. is inspired by her story and a yes. lot of the people that she shared her time in prison with, and yes. I believe one of them was was an actual yes. inspiration for Sophia, right? Absolutely. In Piper's book, I got to talk to Piper about this after we, after the first season. In her book, there's a character named Vanessa, who, that's not her real name, who was inspired yeah. by a woman that Piper served time with in prison, who Piper told me was fabulous. She basically had been a showgirl. She wasn't a lesbian like my character, but she had been a showgirl, and she would talk about all her male suitors, and she was just fabulous. Yeah according to Piper Kerman. <laughs> and then I think that when Sean Hedder and the writers for Orange started doing research, they talked to a trans woman here in Los Angeles who was a firefighter, and they thought that would be a cool sort of backstory for Sophia. And so that's how that sort of evolved. But yeah, there was a real person who inspired Sophia. But I think for everything with Piper Kerman's book, is that her book inspired the show. I don't think our show is based on sure, the show. Sure, it's sure, sure. inspired it. Well, so I, well, maybe this is where you're looking to go. I want to ask you about... The, the first time I think audiences really got to know Sophia on the show was in in her character's backstory episode, which mm-hmm. was called Lesbian Request Tonight. This is the third episode of season the one. Third episode of the series, yeah. Directed by Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster. And here's where we find out about the background of the family and the fraud and the firefighting and any other yeah. F words that I might have been leaving <laughs> out. So let me just ask you, I mean, A, to, to get so much meat on the bone for a script to then have it directed by Jodie Foster to then have to figure out with her how you're going to portray pre-transition Sophia, which was going to be a challenge because it's not exactly nice to ask somebody who's transitioned to then go and play their pre-trans identity. I mean, that whole experience, how would you synopsize it? 
So when we were, she was shooting the second episode, and I we were in the salon. The brilliant Danielle Brooks. Oh my god, I love her so much. And um, it's my first day working with Danielle. Oh my god, it was like the first day I met her. I love her. Oh, memories. Anyway, um, so that we were shooting the salon scene, and Jinji approaches me and says, you know, for the backstory, we need to find an actor to hire. And I was like, well, who are you going to hire? I must play this. Who else could play it? You were open to doing it. Absolutely, I'm an actor. That's what right, we do. Right. That's 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 absolutely what we do. And, yeah. and 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 Gingy said, "Well, we didn't want to re-traumatize you." Mm. That's what she said, and I was just sort of like, "Wow, that's mm. that's very thoughtful." Mm. And I said, "I think I can do it." So first of all, Jodie Foster is one of my idols. She's one of my acting idols. She's mm-hmm. a brilliant director mm-hmm. as well. And so when I, I met her my very first day on Orange Is the New Black, and she came up to me, I went to craft services to see what the fruit was like, <laughs> you know. And she comes, this woman comes up to me very unassuming and says, "Hi, I'm Jodie. I'm directing episode three. So my this my first day of Orange, I knew I was recurring. I didn't know what episode three was. No one had told me that there was a backstory. No one told me anything. So all of a sudden, I'm standing on set my first day on the show, and Jodie Foster's standing (laughs) in front of me. And I'm like... What the fuck? <laughs> I there's I mean I, I was like and I was like trying to stay calm right. and just sort of I was like yeah hi I know who you are uh, I've heard of you she was so dope she, she was so cool I've talked about this many times so mm-hmm. I won't reiterate too much of that but luckily Jody wanted to meet with me before we started shooting and I think. That never happens in television. Mm -hmm. So we read some scenes together. We talked about and read some scenes together. And I think the second meeting, it was a scene with me and Crystal when I dressed as a woman for the first time in front of my wife, Crystal. Mm -hmm. And Jody and I were reading the scene. He said, can we get up and do it? And so we're in Jody's office and she's she crabs me and like we're doing I'm doing a scene with Jody Foster in her office. And what was wonderful about it, though, is that up until... Every other time I'd interacted with her, I was like trying to stay calm, but I was like, you're Jodie Foster. I cannot breathe right now. Hello, I need Clarice. to pass out. Yeah, exactly. All of that. I need to pass out because you're mm-hmm. Jodie Foster. But what the wonderful thing about once we got up and did the scene together is that we were just actors. We were two yeah, actors in right. a scene and she was a human being. And Jodie Foster is the most down to earth person you would ever meet. But in that moment, we were just two actors doing a scene. And honestly, that was the, that allowed me to sort of be on set with her and yeah. not freak out. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you, Jody, for the meetings That's beforehand. Yeah. And then in that process, they were sort of bringing in these very butch black guys to play me pre-transition. So before before they even happened, I had a day of hair and makeup test because they wanted to do a screen test for Sophia's looks through her transition. And we ended the day with her, finally her sort of guy look. Mm-hmm. And they put facial hair on me and put me, you know, put me in a bandana and tried to, you know, make me look like, you a, were okay like a dude. Yeah, I was. I'm an actor. Yeah. We, for me, it was weird. I mean, I'm gonna be real. It was real. Yeah. I did a student film years ago where the character I played a trans woman who dresses as a man to steal someone's watch. It was a student film for Columbia because right. that back in the day I did whatever I yeah, had to do sure. to work and I was like I'm gonna go out as this character and so I'm, I have the facial hair on and I go and I get a, it was harder to get a cab uh-huh. which is deep <laughs> and it was and people were very cool calling me sir and it was it was horrible. It yeah. was actually really horrible and yeah. traumatizing. At the day, at the I remember after the and when that day ended, I was like, "Get me out of this!" <laughs> I was like, "Ah!" It was really horrible. Yeah. But that's the job, yeah. you know. So I was prepared to do all that, and I remember Jody was at lunch, and I go and I'm, go to she's watched, you know, I'm like trying to butch it up for Jody with all this facial hair on, and she looks at me, and she says, 
we have to hire someone. <laughs> I was like, wow. After all that work. And then they, long story short, they yeah. found out I have a twin brother and they brought him in to audition and he had a leg up over the competition <laughs> and he got the part to play Sophia pre-transition. Yeah, it worked perfectly. Uh, yes. More and more shows are hiring LGBTQ writers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe Jill Salway, who was just on this podcast and who I believe now herself identifies as, or them themselves now identifies as non-binary, non-binary, has made a point of doing that on Transparent and I Love Dick, and I'm sure others have as well. But for you on Orange is the New Black, some of the people writing about the trans experience are not trans people, and I'm sure that's most of the time been the case. How do you navigate that? Is it a matter of, are, do, they, do they reach out to you and say, hey, can you give us your input, or do you ask for input, or do you just sort of run with it unless there's something bad? Artists are particular people and have their own processes, and I've been, Orange is New Black has blessed me so much, and I, I feel like I've had incredible stories, storylines on the show. So I've never been, I've never personally been approached on Orange about a storyline to say, or my experience, and, and that's never happened to me on Orange. It's happened to me on other projects, but not on Orange is New Black. Mm-hmm. I basically get the scripts, and we and we try to figure out how to make it make it work and make it come to life. How did it work out that during the run of Orange is the New Black, which is obviously ongoing, you simultaneously found time to be the first trans person to star as a trans central character in a broadcast network show as well? With doubt, it didn't last as long as anyone would have liked, but it was still groundbreaking in a major way. This was created by some alums of Grey's Anatomy, and then went on CBS. How did that, A, come about, and B, how did you juggle the two shows? The past four years, I've been working like a dog, basically. Basically, I do want to correct the record that a show that's on Fox now that was not canceled called Star that features Amaya Scott, the brilliant young trans actress, their show premiered before Doubt. So technically, Amaya Scott is the, and apparently she's a series regular on that show. So that show, and I was confused too. We had, she corrected me recently on Twitter. I'm grateful for that. So Amaya Scott technically was the first transgender woman to be a series regular on um, on broadcast television, on primetime television. Mine was announced before, but their show premiered ahead of time. But what's exciting is that at one point, when the two weeks that Dat was on the air, they were on, both on shows were Wednesday night, there were two black transgender women series regulars on primetime television, on broadcast television. That's exciting. So I managed to do, so Doubt came about, um, so I was never a series regular on Orange, so I had a lot of freedom to do other work and so I did and so the audition for Cameron Worth in Doubt came along actually in 2015 mm-hmm. and I auditioned and tested for it and got the part Doubt initially was um, we did the first pilot in 2015 it wasn't picked up there was some casting changes we did reshoots in October of 2015 and it was finally picked up in 2016 so I was sort of on hold with CBS for two years wow. basically and the show gets picked up we shoot all 13 and it starts airing February 15th and is cancelled after the second episode the exciting thing is that they've been airing the other episodes now on Saturday nights at 8pm 
um, episodes seven and eight are airing. Okay. It's coming. I don't know when this podcast comes out, but through August 12th, folks can watch on television episode, the remaining episodes of Doubt, and or they can go to CBS.com That's and great. catch up. That happened because I've wanted to do this my whole life, and I got an opportunity, and I wanted to make the most of it. I remember saying to a few of my coworkers on Orange season one, and Vicky Judy reminds me of this, I was like, I basically said, this is the time to hustle. Yeah. This is the moment where we have a spotlight that we may never have again yeah. in our careers. Now it's the time to capitalize and to and to make and to hustle. And, and so you so went I've after been doing that, that. One, right? I mean, <laughs> that, and we should say like it's it's uh, I guess a sign of progress, an encouraging sign that in that case of doubt, you heard about a role and went after it. But the reason the role existed in the first place was because these creators, Tony Phelan and Joan Rader have a trans son themselves who you had reached out to before you ever knew about them. That's right. Tom, their son, is a brilliant actor. He's brilliant. And he had a role on The Fosters, that ABC Family Show, like a year before uh, the Adult audition. And when I found out that there's other trans actors, I try, and whenever I can, I'm not aware of every trans actor out there, I try to reach out and support them and let them know that, you know, I have their back and there's support and there's love because it's, you know, it's hard out there. And so I reached out to him on Twitter and they mentioned to me in my in my screen test when I met them, oh, you reached out to our son Tom. I'm like, who's your son Tom? <laughs> and I'm like, Tom, I'm like, oh, that's your son. I'm like, cool. And maybe Does that helped me get the part. Uh, no, maybe no, why they even created a trans character in the well, first place. What, what I found out after the fact is that um, after I got the job, Tony told me that they had actually had me in mind when they wrote Cameron, but they assumed that I wasn't available because of Orange is New Black. Right. People assumed that I was a series regular on right. Orange because um, a lot of folks, a lot of actors, we have so many actors on our show, mm-hmm. and a lot of actors who recur a lot and have wonderful, juicy storylines, isn't that yeah. wonderful, yeah. aren't necessarily series regular. So people just assumed that I was a series regular and that I would, so they assumed I wasn't available and they found that I was then it was, it kind of was beshared. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the only other person who's used the word beshared on this podcast is R- Rabbi Marvin Heyer, who, <laughs> let me tell you, who who knew in that case, that's an unusual situation there, a two-time Oscar-winning rabbi, the only oh. rabbi in the Academy. Oh. But anyway. Well, I've often dubbed myself as America's premier black transgender shiksa goddess. <laughs> So that's great. <laughs> you, you, you two should do a panel together. That would be great. His book is called Beshared, I think. But anyway, shout uh, out to my friend Ari Gold, Sir Ari Gold, who wrote a song called Beshared, and he's the reason I know <laughs> what Beshared means. That's great. So let's just synopsizing. This past year, you starred in the TV remake of Rocky Horror Picture Show for Fox, mm-hmm. recreating Tim Curry character. Doubt, even if it didn't last as long as it as would have liked, it lasted a little bit. Also, in the last year, Trump and a lot of Republicans got elected without while saying some things that weren't especially wonderful about the the LGBTQ community sort of wedge making it a wedge issue but for orange you're now nominated for best guest actress in a drama emmy this is your second nomination for the show the last time was when i guess they regarded you guys as a comedy they they are they've wavered on that you're now the first and the second trans person to have openly trans person to receive an Emmy nomination. An acting Emmy nomination. An acting Emmy nomination, yes. Has this year felt like a, a bit of a roller coaster and is the second nomination in some ways even a little sweeter because of the fact that, you know, any you could argue, all right, one nomination, it could be a fluke or whatever. Two, you're doing something right. Yeah, it just 
I'm still honestly overwhelmed. And I was when I was thinking about I was thinking this morning, I was like, why am I so overwhelmed by this nomination this time? And why does it feel so much more special? I think it's because it's the second time, because maybe it is the for one time is like maybe they made a mistake. <laughs> and I think because of the nature of the work that I'm nominated for. Again, I mean it's funny because we that we went into so much of my own personal history that so that that's what was required of me for this part. I mean, I think I did a lot of research on folks in solitary and particularly transgender people in solitary. Most often trans people who are incarcerated spend their time in men's prisons in solitary confinement. There's a woman named Erica, Erica King. She also goes by Erica Thompson, who made some news the night before my um, the Emmy nominations were announced. A video uh, sort of went viral, at least in my on my timeline, mm-hmm. of a woman who was talking about Erica's story. She's been brutalized. She was basically a proposition for sex by her by a cellmate, mm-hmm. and she complained to the uh, corrections officers, and they were frustrated and, and decided that they would allegedly assault, physically assault her mm. and then place her in solitary. So that story happened the night before. I found out about that story the night before my Emmy nomination for an episode where I play a trans woman who was physically attacked in prison and who complained and was placed in solitary for her for her protection. So it just... There have, many, there have been many times over the past, over the years, that um, storylines on Orange is the New Black have been bigger than a TV show. They've been bigger than entertainment. Many times, and I've talked to my castmates about that, I've talked mm-hmm. about this in the, in, in the press before. And so this solitary, when I got this storyline, of course, I've been work, I was working on the documentary about Cece McDonald, and I had recently interviewed her, and she had talked in detail mm-hmm. in these interviews about being placed in solitary confinement three different times when she was in prison. Chelsea Manning. Uh, exactly. Yeah, so so the, and and so there's so there's real life stories of trans folks in prison mm-hmm. in solitary. So we have to honor those stories. And then what is required when you're an actor is that we must excavate our own personal narratives, our own personal traumas and shame and experiences to bring truth and life to the circumstances. So doing research, I found that you know over half the people who are in solitary find themselves suicidal and are, are paranoid and get hallucinations. And, and Brene Brown, one of my favorite thought leaders right now, tells us that love and belonging are irresistible reducible needs of human beings and to be cut off from human contact something that is so fundamental can really drive one to madness I mean if you're just in I think about all the times I've sort of isolated myself and and have from, and I don't have human contact, just mm-hmm. to go, go, let my thoughts run wild and not be able to sort of check in with someone about that or get out of my own head. I was like, this is where I have to go for this, for the, for these scenes and for this season. I was most of the whole season I was yeah. in solitary. Yeah. Doing research, I was like, okay, I have to really. I wanted to be really specific, so I, I called my acting coach, Brad Calcaterra, and I sent him the script, and I was like, okay, <laughs> help. Right. And I've been working with Brad for many, many years, so he, we had a little bit of a shorthand, and we made some really specific choices about how to not overdo the paranoia, the hallucinations, right. the, all, all, the, the, all the trauma and shame stuff that, that exists there. I just sort of established in earlier seasons that mm-hmm. Sophia is kind of shame-based, particularly in relationship to um, what she's done to her family and how she sort of abandoned them. So that sort of has lived with Sophia, with a lot of other layers sure. with, with her. Yeah, yeah. And so I was like, we have to go there. And it's I think it's been hard for me to talk about this because... 
yes, there's the real life stuff of, of solitary and trans people, but in terms in terms of the process of being an actor, and I think too, I still feel like such a student of you know I just started a new acting class here in LA, oh, and I feel like such a student, and I'm still learning. But what I do know is that you have to go there and you have to commit, and going there yeah. is sometimes living and sitting in horrible trauma and horrible shame for the sake of the work. And so that's what what I had to do for this. Well, people should definitely recheck it out or check it out, whatever, before they vote. This is season four's fourth episode, Dr. Psycho. It's several scenes throughout the episode spread out. You pop up in as just in various forms of protest of this confinement to the shoe or the secure housing unit or solitary, whatever people call it. And Mm -hmm. so that's what's being considered now. And we always close with a yes. rapid fire round, okay? Which is just the first sentence or two that comes to your mind in response to these topics. First of all, you've been asked to speak a lot, not only today but generally as a essentially a representative of an entire community. How does that feel? Is that a burden? Is it a responsibility? Is it something you enjoy? It's a, certainly a, it's an honor. It's a responsibility. There's a tremendous amount of pressure, and one person cannot represent an entire community. So we have to multiply trans voices in the media. What feedback to you and your work have you received over these last five years that has meant the most to you? When I meet young transgender people who said that their lives have changed because of my work, that they decided not to commit suicide because of my visibility, that they decided to pursue their dreams of being actors or to transition or to come out to friends and family, that means the most to me. Mm-hmm. I understand that you briefly met President Obama a while back. (laughs) What did you say to him, and what would you say if you had two minutes, one-on-one, nobody else in the room, with President Trump? So I met former President Obama twice. The first time I thanked him for everything his administration has done for trans folks. And then the second time I met him, I said, I will not spoil anything in Orange is New Black. Because for both times, <laughs> he, he was like, both times he was like, don't tell me what happens next. Um, he and the former first lady were huge fans. That's great. And if I were, had had time with the current president, Who's that? <laughs> I don't know if I can say that in polite company. Well, um, let me just note, by the way, because this was a famous reference, I forget who said it on, on one of these White House Correspondents Association dinners, but Trump in succeeding Obama that is orange is the new black, <laughs> right? I mean, that's what they said. It's, it was it was a joke that the president just made. Yes. It's the joke I've heard many times. Yes. Is it, is it, <laughs> it's a little tired. As an actor on Orange is the yes, New Black. Yes. yes. You'll pass. Okay. Yeah. Jeffrey Tambor on, and Transparent, Caitlyn Jenner and I Am Kate, Maya Taylor and Tangerine, mm. Chelsea Manning. None of these people were or shows were out there prior to you. How does it make you feel to have essentially blaze this trail. It's undeniable. I'm grateful for the distinction, but I always want to um, acknowledge the people who come, who came before me, who made it possible for me, Candace Kane, Alexandra Billings, Alicia Brevard, who recently passed away as a brilliant trans actor from, from back in the day, and all the, and all the black actors, too, who've, who've given me a template of how to, what it means to blaze people like Cicely Tyson and Diane Carroll and Dorothy Dandridge, who gave me a historical template of what it means to blaze a trail. Last two. What trans stories most need to be told to a wide audience that haven't yet been told? Let's start there. There's millions. There's millions. And it's, it's and so I think it's just about having more trans folks in front of and behind the camera and in control of telling telling these stories. And just and the more voices you get in the story making process, the more stories you'll get. And lastly, 
and I hope Miss Ridgeway is listening. Have you gone to New Orleans and worn a dress? I have. I've only been to New Orleans once, and I, but I spoke at Tulane University in 2014, and I wore a green and black sheath dress. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been thank fun. Thank you so much. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.